Thanks for listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look into the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here, as always, with the great Jeff Simmons. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing this week? I'm doing fine, Celeste. It's wonderful to be back with you today. Yeah, absolutely. I know you've uh, been on the road a little bit here and there in the uh, the last few days or weeks. So uh, glad to have you back where you belong. Good to hear your voice as always. You know, it's interesting because of today's topic that we'll get to in a moment. I tend to listen to news shows most of the time when I'm on long drives. My partner, of course, gets a little sick of that. But Clearly, you know, there is a lot going on in the news. And with the anniversary coming up this weekend of 9-11, you know, uh, there was considerable coverage. And as you just heard our listeners in the news report, security is being stepped up, uh, you know, in advance of a potential September 18th event in Washington, D.C. But I've also been reading the stories about security being stepped up here in New York City uh, in advance of the anniversary this weekend, Celeste. Yeah, there's a lot of news going on this week. You know, New York's still dealing with the fallout of that horrific storm and associated flooding. We talked about that on last week's uh, program here on Driving Forces. COVID, of course, remains on the map. Something else that we've talked about, looking at the reopening of New York City public schools coming up, I believe, on September 13th, so right around the corner. And, of course, we have a new governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, who hopefully will be joining us very soon right here on Driving Forces, uh, hopefully in the coming weeks, still having good talks with uh, with her office about making that happen. Uh, but for right now, uh, as Jeff mentioned, a lot of us are getting ready to mark uh, a milestone that's extremely sad. And for some of us, you know, really kind of startling. Uh, the fact that Saturday, of course, marks the 20th anniversary, 20 years past since the attacks of 9-11. So for me, maybe for you, Jeff, uh, you know, amazing to realize how much time has passed since that morning. And for a lot of us, especially for those of us who are in New York or Washington, Washington or Shanksville, Pennsylvania that day, you know, that first moment when we realized what was happening and the magnitude of what was happening will will never really leave us. And Jeff, you know, I was wondering, do you remember where you were that day and what you were doing that morning? Oh, extremely clearly. And I was headed to the gym that morning. Uh, Usually my producer from I was at New York one at the time, my producer and I would be at the gym together. And I know we're going to get to a guest in a moment. So I'll be very brief. And she said, we got to get to the station, a small plane had hit one of the Twin Towers. So, you know, and later on in the show, if we have time, I'll talk more about it. But then New York One had dispatched me down to the site before the buildings had come down. And I'll give more details on that as the show goes along, Celeste. Yeah, we can we can talk about it that more. At the time, I was uh, myself I was a reporter for the New York Daily News and uh, covering politics at the time. So, uh, you know, I had expected my day to be very busy, but to start a little bit later on because I thought I'd be following around, uh, you know, candidates, watching returns come in, uh, you know, maybe hearing some victory concession speeches, writing on deadline. Um, but when I found out what happened, you know, we we already knew this was a big deal, but I don't think we really understood just how profoundly and how permanently it would change all of our lives. And so I want to bring in somebody who knows a lot about that and whose work I I really admire, whose strength I I really admire. Um, Always did when I worked alongside him at the Daily News, and uh, that's only uh, become more and more the case as time goes on. Uh, It's David Hanshu. He's an award-winning photographer, writer, videographer, and editor. Uh, He's been an adjunct professor of photojournalism at New York University since 1994, and he's 
taught visual journalism around the world to people of all ages. He is, among other things, a three-time Pulitzer nominee, and his work has been honored by the National Press Photographers Association, the New York Press Club, the Deadline Club, too many more to name. So, David Hanshu, really an honor to uh, have you here with us today on WBAI. And really wonderful to talk with two long-term friends. You're not old friends. You're long-time friends. (laughs) So, David, you know, I was thinking that um, Jeff and I, of course, very familiar with your work, worked alongside you uh, for many years. And I think that people who are listening to this program may have seen your photographs uh, in newspapers, seen your videos, and so on. Um, But, you know, tell us, uh, just for for people who may may be new to you, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and what kind of work you do. You know, you're, I, I listened to the intro, and, and one of the things that echoed in my mind was, you're only as good as your last picture, no matter what your bio says about you. And um, I was very fortunate as a lifelong New Yorker to grow up reading the Daily News. And in the black and white days, the paper had a centerfold, and old-time Daily News readers would either start on the back page on the sports page, or put their finger in the middle and open up two pages every single day in a centerfold of the most wonderful, wonderful photographs that you could ever imagine seeing. So as a kid, I'd wait for my dad to get off the subway. He'd come up in the evening, I'd meet him, I'd grab the Daily News from under his arm and go right to the centerfold. So years later, when I started at the paper, I, I literally worked along my, alongside with my idols, the people whose photographs I grew up just wanting to emulate. And so... Obviously, today, and, and, and I've loved your work for, for many, many years. Uh, you know, today, obviously, we are talking about a particular day, um, and I would like to hear a little bit about, you know, what were you doing on that morning of September 11th? I think we all had our own work plans in one way or another, but, you know, sort of set a scene for us as we, as we think back 20 years later. What were you doing that morning, and, and what happened from there? Well, Celeste, just like you, um, um, I wasn't scheduled to work until later in the evening. Um, when uh, the returns were coming in at the polls, and I'd be going to one of the candidates' uh, command post and and um, wait for the results. So I was in my car driving down to NYU, where I was teaching a graduate-level photojournalism class. And like most New Yorkers, you sit in traffic, you either complain about it or you take advantage of that downtime. So I was cleaning up my car, which was really a mobile office at that point. Um, I was about a mile and a half north of the Trade Center when all of a sudden the police and fire radios screamed, a plane hit the World Trade Center and it's on fire. So I actually looked up, saw the hole in the side of the building, saw the smoke coming out of there, and figured, oh, God, what a horrible accident. Somebody in a small plane is accidentally driven into the, uh, flown into the World Trade Center. I looked in my rearview mirror, and there was a fire department rescue company coming southbound in the northbound lane of traffic. And 
since it's about 20 years ago, I can admit to violating a bunch of state, city, and federal laws. Um, went right over the center divider and jumped onto their uh, right behind them. Um, there are firefighters in there who I had covered for years. Um, my beat was police officers, firefighters, breaking news, uh, things that blew up and burned down. And there were firefighters getting into their air tanks, uh, getting ready to go in and save lives. And they were waving out the back of the rescue to me. Um, there were 11 firefighters on rescue one that morning. They were in their own hearse going to their own funeral, just had absolutely no idea. And, uh, David, it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I think back, you know, during the show and lately I've just been thinking back to those moments, you know, 20 years ago, and you just can't believe how much time has passed. You know, what is so amazing is, you know, your journey as well, because I've seen, you know, the photo Celeste uh, reminded me today of, of this one image and you've tweeted it out. And we'll, we'll ask a little more about that in a moment uh, of you being rescued. You know, when you think back to that day, how did that just change your perspective? Uh, you know, because you had, that, by the way, that same thought, too. We all had that same thought. Small plane accident. And then it just, you know mushroomed i can't think of a better word right now but it just you know i look back and there are times where i just don't even want to think about it how did that just change your perspective on life and, and you know i mean it's a, a really deep question but it's it i talk to people about this too about even the years afterwards and what my mind was like well it could be 20 years it could be 20 minutes ago there are days where it's as recent in my mind as as you know, a blue sky, a beautiful blue sky. I think anybody who was in New York that morning remembers that there was a beautiful end of summer morning. The humidity was low and it finally broken. The temperature was nice. That sky was an achingly beautiful blue. And it was a beautiful day until 8.48 in the morning when it became a horrible, horrible day. Uh, but for me personally, um, I was a breaking news photographer. I covered um, anything, you know, any non-planned, non-scheduled events in New York City. And the morning of sub September 12th, I called the office and said, I never want to photograph anybody dead or dying again. So that was quite a profound change. That was a 180-degree change for me. It was about nine months till I got back to work after, um, after recovering from my injuries. Um, but I went from chasing fire trucks to food and restaurants and chefs and feature photos and portraits and travel. And, um, you know, everybody needs to change. Everybody needs to get out of their comfort zone. My hand was pushed that day. Um, but all I can say is that I'm very, very fortunate to be alive. I owe my life to so many rescuers. Uh, people who were strangers on the morning of September 11th, and to this day are friends who I will see on Saturday morning at the Trade Center. And 
David Hanshu, for people who, you know, we knew you at that time as a daily newsman, daily news photographer, um, but other people may not know the story of what happened after you followed that fire engine and went to the scene. You were making your photographs, and this was ultimately not something you were only observing. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what happened to you when you were down there making your pictures. Mm-hmm. I, I was at the World Trade Center probably for less than an hour. Um, I photographed the second plane plowing into the South Tower. And you talk about that, um, you know, that achingly beautiful blue sky. Uh, the photograph uh, shows this ugly, orange, hateful flame blowing out of the South Tower um, with this ugly black column of smoke coming from the North Tower, yet that um, that blue sky is in the background taunting us. It's teasing us. It's, um, it's almost unfair to see that, that beautiful, clear day. Um, after the second plane hit, I went into the firehouse. Uh, the, it's called the 10 house, engine 10 and ladder 10. And there were people being treated by EMS on the scene. There were firefighters who were coming in uh, on duty and off duty, grabbing equipment and waiting to go in and help. I remember a firefighter said, sign in, brother. And firefighters call each other brother. And uh, it's probably one of the greatest compliments I could ever have. Um, And every time a firefighter comes into a firehouse in New York City, from the times of horse-drawn fire trucks and wooden ladders, there's a ledger at the desk, and they sign in with their name the time they got there. And I turned to the firefighter and said, I'm not a firefighter. He said, sign in, brother. It's going to be history. So if I have one regret for that day, it's that I never signed in at the tent house that morning. So I took pictures there, took pictures on the south side of the trade center, walked over to the west side, where people were fleeing, paramedics were starting to arrive, fire trucks were showing up. And the city that's known for its noise was so remarkably quiet that day, or at least my perception was that um, I was viewing a TV program with the mute button that was hit. And um, I, I just continued to take photographs until I heard this loud rumbling sound, looked up, and I was standing basically in front of the South Tower, was ready to bring the camera up to my eye when a voice in the back of my head said, run, run, run. Um, I've never run from an assignment ever on the streets of New York, but I'm convinced that listening to the voice in the back of my head that morning was one of the things that helped save my life. I turned and ran, was picked up by this tidal wave of of air and debris and was tossed about half a city block, landing halfway under a fire chief's car that had been parked on the, um, on the sidewalk. Um, I was buried alive. My mouth and my nose were jammed with debris. I had stuff on top of me. And I really thought I was going to die face down in the gutter of New York, but managed to clear my mouth and my nose, and uh, call for help. And that's when Lieutenant Tom McGough 
and a bunch of firefighters from Engine 217 dug me out. You know, in fact, you had very critical injuries to your legs, and as Celeste had pointed out, and I want to bring this up, she had brought up with me your tweet today where you mentioned police officer Jim Kelleher and FDNY EMS Chief Charlie Wells carrying you out. Todd Mizell, another photographer for the Daily News, had taken some photos at that time. And, you know, there was also a firefighter who helped you as well, and and you don't know that person's name. So, of course, if listeners uh, will retweet this from our uh, Driving Forces Twitter account so people can see this. In fact, I think I did that earlier today. If you know that firefighter, it's a type of detail I know that you, would be important to you because these people saved your life, uh, David. You know, what, what do you want to say to them if they might even be listening to the show today? I, 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 w- I want to say that you are the only single person who I've been unable to identify and say thank you to. Um, 19 years 11 months and 363 days since you helped save my life. And I'd love to just meet you, shake your hand, and say thank you very much. Thank you can't begin to express how grateful I am for the people who helped me out. But uh, that one photograph, uh, Jim Kelleher from the 13th Precinct, Charlie Wells, a longtime friend and an EMS paramedic chief. Uh, But... um, there's a firefighter there. I'm guessing he's a New York City firefighter. He's wearing all the gear the right way. He doesn't have a helmet on. Um, he might be an off-duty firefighter who came in and grabbed a coat. Might be a volunteer from New Jersey or out of town who is right down there and, and pitched in, as rescue workers often do. But um, have a look at the photograph. Um, I'd, I'd love to just Meet him and say thank you. We're talking to photographer David Hanshu. He is uh, was a, a photographer for the New York Daily News on the job on uh, September 11, 2001, uh, when he was injured by falling debris in the collapse of the uh, World Trade Center. And David, you know... It feels like every year, and I'm sure more for for you and for people who who were injured and have lost than for, you know, it's just sort of the general person. But I think, you know, in the heart of every New Yorker, it's a dark day. And and I, I would say one thing, which is that the detail that you mentioned about the color of the sky is the thing that stands out for me completely. I remember opening my eyes that morning and seeing the color of that sky. I don't think, I don't think I've ever seen one quite like it ever again. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what's going on in your mind as we approach this milestone? It's an important day every year, but 20 years, you know, what are you going to do or, or maybe not do to, to mark the anniversary this year? Well, I'm honored to be one of six photographers who'll be in the photographic pool down at the World Trade Center. A pool photographer, um, their work gets distributed by the Associated Press, by um, um, by Getty. By um, It's circulated around the world, and it's basically image sharing. So to be one of six photographers who are being allowed onto the site on Saturday morning, it is a great honor, and, um, you know, whether it's 20 years, whether it's 10 years, the second anniversary, or hopefully the 40th anniversary, I'll be down at the Trade Center. I, I, I go down there to think a little bit, 
I go down there and touch the names on the memorial who are friends who are no longer with us, who were murdered that morning. And um, I, I go down to meet with my rescuers and um, I just say thank you to them. So, David, what's been also interesting is, and I, I saw a tweet from someone else earlier, and I always wonder about this as we lead up to major anniversaries or lead up to major events, you know, and someone had posted, I'm sick of hearing about 9-11, you know, so much recently. And, you know, I wondered if that person, uh, how old they were, what they knew about what happened, how they were impacted by that, because as difficult as it might be for folks to, some folks to relive that moment, you know, it is a defining moment in the history of this country and of this world. So what do you want to, what would you want to tell the listeners who are tuning in right now? who might be feeling, well, I'm hearing too much about 9-11. You know, what do you want them to know about, you know, about the significance of that day and how it changed mm -hmm. our country and how it changed many of us? So everybody's going to react differently to anniversaries. It's a very sad time for a lot of people, and a lot of people are um, just desirous to remain as far away as possible from it. What I would suggest to anybody who's really tired of it is to turn off the TV, turn off the radio, and take that day as a day of service. There are so many opportunities to help out in your community, to help out after the recent flooding, to help out with COVID. Turn off the TV. Get out of your house. Go donate some of that time to help other people. I think that's the greatest way that you can give back on that day. And David, as we as we come to a, a close here, I'm just wondering, you know, we always say, and I've seen you say it in in some of your postings, and and along with your wonderful photographs of of many things. But you know, we always say, never forget, never forget 9/11. And you know, Jeff was mentioning, you know, there are lots of kids who weren't alive. It's something in a in the history books. I mean, do you think people will always remember, or do you think it'll become like you know, I don't, I don't even know what to compare it to, Pearl Harbor Day or, or, or something else. I mean, do you think that a new generation is really going to pick this up? Or do you think there will come a time when, when people don't remember as uh, the way we do now? Well, I, I think the memory will probably fade and will probably change. But whatever I can do to help people, um, I, you know, always forget is a very, very important statement. Um, but always remember, I think, uh, this is more, more, um, more important. And, um, yeah, there, there's a whole generation, um, who wasn't born. But, you know, looking at the stories from the last couple of days, there are brand new firefighters and police officers and paramedics and court officers who weren't born when their relatives lost their life at the trade center. And, um, you know, their memory is going to stay with those folks and continue on. And David Hanshaw, for people, uh, and this is everybody, for people who uh, should know and want to know more about the work that you do as a, as a visual journalist, as an artist, where can they find out more about you and what you do? Um, I'd love for you to follow me on Instagram. I'm Flying Manatee. Uh, my website is davidhanshu.com or flyingmanatee.com. 
David Hanshu, I've been so, so glad to, to hear your voice, and it's been wonderful to, to speak to you and, and uh, to have you join us here today on WBAI. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Celeste and Jeff. Thanks. So you've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. And we were just talking with David Hanshu, uh, who at the time was a photographer for the New York Daily News, who captured uh, amazing images of the World Trade Center site on 9-11 of 2001 and was seriously injured uh, after the second building had been struck by a plane and a, a number of debris had fallen. We just retweeted at his uh, at our Twitter account, which is Forces Driving, what he was talking about, his tweet, where he doesn't know who the firefighter is. If you get a chance and you are on Twitter, you should definitely look that up. Celeste? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that we can do because, you know, there are a lot of people who are, uh, you know, it sounds cliche to say unsung hero. But if you think about this for nearly 20 years, David Hanshaw has been looking just to thank, just to meet and to thank somebody who helped save his life after he was grievously injured. And if you see some of the photographs of what happened to David Hanshaw, somebody, again, who I worked very closely with for many years uh, when I was a reporter and he was a photographer for the Daily News, uh, you know, you see pictures of him being carried out of this rubble, and he was actually pulled out of there. He couldn't even be taken directly to a hospital. They just brought him out a little distance from where the towers were coming down and put him down, like, on the floor of a bodega with his legs broken. I mean, this is this is what happened to him. And the thing that he talks about, which we didn't even uh, get into so much, is that what one thing he was able to save was his cameras. He was able to hang, he lost his glasses, he lost his phone, he lost his pager, you know, everything went by the wayside, but he hung on to those cameras and the images in those cameras made up part of the historical document of what we are talking about uh, still to this day, 20 years later, and I'm sure we'll be talking about for, you know, generations and generations to come. So if you do go on Twitter, look him up at Flying Manatee, and perhaps you or somebody you know may recognize this last person, this last piece of his story of how he he ended up being rescued uh, and being with us here today uh, to talk about what happened to him on uh, September 11th, 2001. So a little earlier in the show, I mentioned uh, what, you know, my experience a little about it, what had subsequently happened uh, with me kind of leads into my next, uh, our next guest today. Uh, I had been sent down by New York One it was my cameraman's first day on the job, if you can believe it. So he didn't even know how to work a camera well. So I grabbed the camera, made him drive. We followed a police car all the way down the West Side Highway, got right down there. I had the camera on the buildings the entire time. And as we got under the Stuyvesant Bridge, if you have gone down there, you know the overhead bridge that leads to Stuyvesant High School. That's when the building came down. And, of course, you know, everyone was rushing past us. We moved in deeper into Battery Park City. The other building fell, and then we had to be ferried to New Jersey. But bringing in what happened next, over the next few days, New York One had me assigned to Bellevue Hospital. They had sent me there because it still was very unclear about the extent of injuries and uh, and people did not, were desperately searching for any word about their loved ones. And so I had started outside the hospital to interview loved ones as they showed up. 
They brought photos. Uh, as you, I know this is etched in your memory, the fence outside as people started to put up photos of their loved ones and missing posters. And one of the people I met at the time was Monica Eichen, Monica Eichen, um, Eichen Murphy, uh, who uh, had shown up. She had lost her 37-year-old husband, Michael, uh, a bond trader who had been working on the 84th floor of the World Trade Center. Uh, and so we had met then, and this was you know, a difficult conversation with everyone, and, and I'll talk with Monica in a moment about this, but just a little about her. Uh, she founded September's Mission. That's a nonprofit that, according to its mission statement, is devoted to building a positive and meaningful legacy out of the events surrounding 9-11. She's also a founding trustee of the National September 11th Memorial and uh, Memorial and Museum. Monica Eichen, I really would like to welcome you here to WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. It's ironic because I was just telling a friend, um, somehow people thought I called the media at some point, and my friend Holly was actually the one who made me stand with my picture, and I was like, no, 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 you need to do it, because I didn't want to accept the nightmare. I, I couldn't handle it. So she was like, no, you have to show the picture. It's your husband. I said, no, 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 but I can't. I can't do it, but she made me do it. So I was saying that, you know, I never called the media. I was mortified that this would be my nightmare. I was happily married. I was looking forward to being a mom, and he was looking forward to being a dad because he was adopted, and he was his dream to be a father. So I could not believe that that was my story. It was the most difficult thing I had to do um, that day is to go down from Riverdale on the train next morning and declare him missing. You know, that was really painful. And the next thing you know, I'm catapulted to another level after all the, what happened with the missing posters. So I think, you know, you what you're saying, you, you're correct. It was very difficult. I mean, I, I really, really, honestly, could have put a bag over my head. I was very happy with myself because I, I didn't want anyone to know it was my nightmare. I'm a native New Yorker. I was 31 as yeah. old as the towers. And I, and I just have to say, it was incredibly tough as well. You know, I've done so many interviews and I wanted to give people an opportunity to show those photos on air because you never knew, you know, many people did not know at that point, were, was my loved one in the building? Maybe they didn't make it there in time that morning for their, you know, for work. And, you know, it was just such an emotional time. Can you, you know, I, and I, I won't dominate this conversation, Celeste. It's just, it's been a while since I've connected with Monica. No, but please. Can you just, thank you, can you tell us a little about Michael, about Michael's story? Because I think that's also important is, and I tried to do this on a lot of my coverage on New York One, was to tell people the stories about the people who were lost that day. Who was Michael? Michael was a character. Um, ironically, you know, we met on 9-11-1999. And even yesterday, I was at O'Hara's, and the actually the the bartender, Jimmy, was is now working there. He was in Park Place at the time in Riverdale. And, you know, he, he was like, Michael was waiting for you to come to this bar, and I wasn't even supposed to be there. So he was like, no, that's the girl I'm going to marry. I didn't know that, by the way. So I would have liked to know that ahead of time. I was like, oh, okay, this is easy. Um, <laughs> But um, I just got out of a relationship, so I wasn't even looking, and he was so persistent. He was like that guy. He was just like, sent me so many roses that I had to tell him at one point, okay, I really um, thought he was a stalker because I was like, this is out of control. Like, he, he just was waiting for me in a bar. Then, you know, my friend was there, and he had to get something to eat. And, you know, I talked to him because I was like, oh, this is perfect. There's a guy sitting here. 
lo and behold, I didn't know he was sitting there waiting for me as if he knew I was coming. And what a blessing that I did come and give him the chance because we talked till three something in the morning and my best friend was like, la, la, la. Okay, anytime now, you know, like we were supposed to go out dancing and that obviously did not happen. But he was so happy that he actually proposed to me on um, December 12th, 1999. None of us, I think, were ready for that. I think we just were like, okay, okay, whatever. It's, I guess that's what we're going to do. We're single. We're getting married. So, you know, what a blessing to have met him, um, unfortunately, on that day. But his birthday is on 9-8. And, you know, September became like a wash. But at least we didn't get married on September 11th. We got married in October. So at least... It's just a death and a birth date, but now we celebrate his life. He was such a good soul. He, um, you know, he made me a better person, and I wanted to do anything I could for him. I felt he had so many hardships in his life that I said, I'm going to fix him. I'm going to make him better. He was so not well when I met him that it took two years, literally, to the day of 9-8, and then 9-9, he wanted to stay up all night. And we closed the chapter of our lives in a way that I never experienced with my best friend watching the sunrise in Riverdale. So I think um, looking back, I saw, I see, he was like, he knew he was going to die young. He always said it. You know, I'll never forget him getting his friend, best friend's invitation to his wedding December 1st. And he's like, Monica, I'm not going. And I'm like, excuse me? And I said, what do you mean you're not going? I get chills even saying it. I said, yes, of course you are. I love weddings. We are going. I am looking forward to going to a wedding. He's like, no, I won't be there. How did you know that? So, you know, even that that day, you know, we forgot it was even our anniversary. It was like a, a mental block or something. It's just, he was such a good soul. He, he even on his voicemail had, um, I'm married, don't call me. It was so funny. He was such a character. <laughs> I would do, go do my nails and he'd be like, okay, are you almost done? He always wanted to be near me. He would escape. He would like, you know, go take the clients to dinner, and then he'd be like, MIA. He'd pay the bill, say, I'm going to the bathroom, and then he escaped. He was known notorious for that. He's like, I'm going home to my wife. I'm, I just can't wait to get home to my wife. He, that's how he was. He was just so happy. Uh, we were so in love and so looking forward to being parents. And I think, you know, that's the difficulty I have with this. It's just so hard knowing what if? What would our life be? Would we have three, four kids? You know, where would we be now? You know, people are like, oh, well, you only married 11 months. I'm like, that doesn't mean anything. That, that's a lifetime for me. I was happily married on the day. It doesn't mean, it wouldn't matter if I was married for two minutes. You know, it's, I'm married to this person I love. So that doesn't make it any less important because we were only married 11 months and together two years to the day. Does that make sense? So. Yeah, and Michael no, was so no, happy to be a husband, and, and he was so excited. He was like, September's the month. We're going to have a baby. He was so excited. I almost thought I was pregnant. I almost had a heart attack. So <laughs> on top of all this, I was like, I was so stressed out, I thought I was pregnant. And thank God I wasn't because I wouldn't have been able to do half of this, and I wouldn't want a child without my husband. That just would have been not good for me. So I'm grateful I was able to do the work that I was able to do because I didn't have those responsibilities and I was single and I had nothing to look for but doing the right thing for Michael and all those who are not here with us anymore. Well, let's let's talk about that, Monica. I'm glad that you brought that up because, you know, when you go through something like that, and, and I have to tell you, I mean, it, it is wonderful, truly wonderful to hear about the love that he had for you and what kind of person he was. I mean, it just sounds like an awesome person, like somebody I, I would totally want to know and, and, you know, the kind of friend that anybody would want to have. But, I mean, how did you, you know, 
what what did it take for you to sort of make the decision that you know this had happened to you that you had had this loss but that you were going to you know sort of not sit at home well, and hide and mull mm-hmm. it over but like do something about it how did, how did you come to that well, and then what did you do of, I'm giving God all the credit for this now because what happened was I wasn't well so I literally was a size 8 and women can relate men maybe not um yet you can so uh, so I was mm-hmm. a size 8 I went to a zero Literally, I didn't eat, I didn't sleep, I wasn't doing, I was like, it was, I could not function as a human. And I was like a walking zombie because I just was so like, how is this possible this happened to me? Like, it, I thought, like, I did something wrong in my life. Like, I was like, how how did I lose my Michael guy? Like, it was just like so heart-wrenching for me. I was like, we were just celebrating his 37th birthday, now he's gone. Like, how is that possible? So. The reality sinks in, and then you're like, okay, I have to, I'm, I'm not well, okay, and everybody's like, all right, you need to lie down, like, go lie down, and then this thing comes down like a scroll, a script, and it's like, you're going on a mission, I'm like, excuse me, I don't know who you talk, and now I'm talking to myself, by the way, so just so you know, and, and I'm like, no, I'm not going on any missions, I don't know what you're talking about, no, you're not going to let them build over W, excuse me, and then I'm like thinking, who's talking to me, and I give that to God, I think. And um, all of a sudden I go out to the room and I say, listen, I'm not going to let them build over dead people as long as I walk the planet. They were like, excuse me? <laughs> they were like, okay, Monica, you need help. You need some drugs. Like, maybe Xanax or something. You need something. There's something wrong with you. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. So this is when it was like 33,000. This was like 10 days out, like really early. And I swear the moment I said they're not going to build over dead people, that's when my I was catapulted to another level. Like it just it just angels came out of every direction to help me. I swear I've never in my life I didn't even know half the stuff I did. I don't know how I did it actually. I'm I'm still shocked that we have this world class memorial museum now that we didn't build over dead people. It's just still so like surreal in a way. But that is my mm-hmm. home now, you know, because uh, I have so, no remains of Michael. So you've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. And we're talking with Monica Eichen Murphy about the uh, anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, which is coming up this Saturday. Uh, Monica, you and I last appeared together on New York One a few years ago, and I went back and I, yeah. I looked at one of the sound bites, and, and you've touched on this. You know, I just want to repeat that. As long, This is what you said. As long as I walk on this planet, I will do what I have to do to make sure that we preserve it. The right thing for all of those who are not here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, know, I realize this is incredibly important for you. When you talk with other families and talk talk with other people who've been impacted by 9-11, how are they observing this anniversary? You know, I know as reporters, we always think of, you know, the anniversaries, there's lots of coverage, but this is very personal to so many people. So as you're talking with other families, how are they observing this time? Well, I just want to make it clear that there isn't, we did not move on. We've moved into the life we were chosen for us. We did not think this could happen where people go to work and it's the same thing with the people in Surfside who went to sleep and are not here anymore. So we have accepted that reality and we haven't moved on. It's for us actually like yesterday. I talked to a lot of people. We're like a big family. And, you know, we just know it's a pivotal year. Every time it's a 5, a 10, and a 15, we know 20, it's a pivotal year. It means that we're, um, it just heightens 
the to, to the magnitude of what it is really. And I explained this to someone that we're seeing children. I'm seeing children who are adults now. It is so gut-wrenching to see these humans that are adults that I've watched grow. We're like, you know, we're all a family. And then I have people who are survivors who can't go there at all, like nothing. Will not, they can't. And um, I said to a lot of people, I will hold your hands. I will take you. They need that kind of reassurance to go down, but they can't do it that day. So I had, that's why I created a healing center in my preschool. I can science academy on the Upper East Side so that if somebody doesn't want to go there, they can come here. I have all of my documents for 20 years. I have pictures. I have research materials. I have books. I have everything. And maybe they can come here and, and do music or art or something healing to help them or want to talk to me in private or someone, you know. So I felt that that's important because I there are survivors, to be honest with you, and people who have never gone who can't go. They cannot do it physically. They can't. They won't have nothing to do with it. So it's sad. But the ones that do go, we connect there, and that is our place. We really um, feel like a family, and we are a family. Not everyone might have not agreed with everything that went on, but at the end of the day, we are all affected by the grief and the loss, and we will never be 100%. We're doing the best things we can to survive, and we have done as much as we can you know, to continue forward. And some people haven't, and they're not here to tell the story anymore because they died from grief, and they, you know, tragically things happen to people when they lose someone. So, so Monica, so for you, for you, you know, since, like, your your life has gone on since that day and since uh, since you lost your husband, I mean, what, what have you been able to do for yourself to, you know, to, to keep yourself going, to, to stay active and interested? Like, how has life changed for you from then until, you know, up to and, and beyond this, this 20th anniversary that we're looking at? Well, the good news is I have two beautiful girls who are 13 and 15, almost um, 14 and 16, and I've created the Icon Science Academy in his honor, and that's been active for seven years. We offer a scholarship in Michael's name to children who can't afford um, and need a little break, you know, financially. I've, you know, I feel like I married a wonderful person who's FDNY, and I think that's important. We uh, really appreciate our first responders. Good thing I didn't meet him in my work. I met him separately, and I didn't realize he was affected as well. He was off that day. He was there when Building 7 fell, and he worked there for two weeks. But I didn't meet him through that, so I give him a reprieve because I didn't really want to be with someone who has to deal with the same things because his whole rescue company was killed, Rescue 4. So, you know, I didn't... You know, I didn't, that's another thing. I didn't want to be with other people who lost because, you know, I didn't want to. It's hard enough for me to deal with it besides someone else dealing with it, you know, because I am not able to help you because I'm dealing with my own issues. So, you know, we kind of deal with that and separate on the 11th. And, you know, this is the week that he, he does his thing. I do my thing. Um, and my girls are my legacy now. They were here from the whole. They went through the whole thing with me. I was pregnant doing my work. I mean, it took 10 years to do the memorial. It, it took years to get the museum. I've been doing it. I wobbled along with my pregnant self, and I did it. And so technically they're a part of this process by default. Not that they want it to be, but, you know, they have special angels above. And, you know, Michael's their dad, too, because he's a part of me, and they're a part of me. So he is part of them. So I feel like their job, you know, is, you know, is mandated that they have to carry the legacy when I'm not here and, 
you know, I'm blessed that they understand and they know and they've been there and they know how difficult it is. And, and not in a way that I know, obviously, but they know because they see the pain that I've been going through and they understand it. So that's really important because it's not easy. Trust me, it's not easy being me, and nor would I want anyone to be me personally. Monica, do you think that um, there will ever be a time where we see uh, September 11th marked as an official federal holiday, a national observance? I mean, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, there are certainly remembrances, um, but, you know, putting it on the same level as uh, like a Memorial Day or Veterans Day, other well, special I, dates I, on the calendar. I, yeah, I'm not to cut you off, but I, I agree with you. I think that people have been talking about that, and I really feel now that before they weren't mandating um, the curriculum of 9-11, now they're mandating it in the schools, and I think that is a step to the getting to that point. I actually think, you know, this year and next year we won't have that problem because it'll be on weekend, but I think it is important. People need to have that day off to be able to do what they need to do on that day, whether it's go there, not go there, do something for someone, you know, like people, you know, they get like cancer Fitzgerald, they give their proceeds, you know, they do that, give back, you know, um, uh, they work and they give back to the to uh, causes that are important to them. So I think, you know, people, not everyone wants to go down there, but people sometimes need to be alone and, and have, deal with their grief with how they deal with it. So I think it would be important uh, moving forward that we honor those that we've lost because we've lost actually more now to 9-11 related illnesses, which is really disturbing as well. So, and I want to point out, I do want to point out to our listeners that you had a beautifully written piece in the New York post uh, about your experience. And there's something you pointed out that, you know, I remember seeing a lot of stories about this, about the victim compensation fund and people, you know, uh, allegedly miss, uh, misspending the monies and people coming out of the woodwork seeking, seeking support. But you had pointed out that, you know, that uh, when you had received funding through the Victim Compensation Fund, that it helped to pay for your living expenses and also to launch, and that's really important here, September's, the September's Mission Foundation, the nonprofit that helped to secure the land on the World Trade Center site for what's now the memorial and the museum. Um, you know, for anyone who... Uh, oh, I, 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 I just want you to—I want you to be clear. Like there are a lot of organizations. I did not take yes. anything. I, zero the whole time, and that's twenty years. I've every time I feel like I try to like I have the Ike in preschool. I'm like I'm gonna make I'm gonna work on my make a my, I haven't even gotten a paycheck. I'm like every time I do something, I'm like I guess that's just not happening. I'm just like okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna live with whatever it is. I just feel like so blessed. I feel like God just takes care of me and makes things happen for you know. And I think if you put faith in that and you know, we don't take money from dead people. I, I don't. Let's just let's clarify that. I do not take money from dead people. I make things for dead people using the money, and I'm very proud of that fact because it was actually very disturbing to me to see how many people were soliciting and taking monies and doing the wrong thing, and that's going to go in my book later or on my podcast, either or. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be talking about those things. It's important that you brought that up. I'm glad you did that because I... I think people thought I got rich off of something and won the lottery, which a lot of people had said. And I was like, if you think this is winning the lottery, okay, I will give you every dollar I have. Just get my husband back home. I was happily married. We didn't have a problem. So I didn't need the so money. I, okay, I didn't want my and we've husband only, to be murdered. 
And Monica, we've only got about a minute or so left uh, because we're coming near towards the end of the show. And if you're just tuning in, we're this is WBAI's Driving Forces. Also, uh, we're streaming at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by Celeste Katz-Marston, and we're talking with Monica Eichen about her experiences and her life since. So in the final minute or so that we have left, let our listeners know about you know, about moving ahead. You just mentioned possibly a book or a podcast, what you're up to these days, what we can look forward to, uh, to hearing from you in the future. Well, September's mission, I can say in the Icon Science Academy, we have, um, a healing center that's on the Upper East Side. They can find me on September's mission foundation, you know, dot org. And they can also, I have a podcast room. Uh, it's going to be called once upon a time. I'll send you all the links. You'll see um, launching, my first guest is actually Hillary Clinton. She already did her Zoom call with me, and now I have to launch it um, after 9-11. I'm very pleased to say that. So I think it's important that people understand that I'm here when people need anything. I have the res- I have 20 years of materials. Jeff, I think, and Celeste, you should come by and check it out if you ever want to use my podcast room, which is really cool. Um, I'll send that to you too. I'm just, I'm here for people. I just want people to know that I'm here. If they can't go there, if they can't do something, just know that we're always keeping their memories alive. We're going to keep the legacies alive as long as I'm here on the planet. I will do that. Like I said before, I, w- I would have done anything. I would make sure I was, they're not building over dead people. Now I'm making sure that we never forget them. That is never forgetting. That's the end of the story. As long as I'm alive, we're going to make sure we never forget them. Ever. Our heroes, Monica, our Monica Eichen Murphy, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your work and talking about Michael and, you know, representing all the families that were that were uh, touched by the events of that day. We really appreciate you coming here to uh, to share that with us here on Driving Forces. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And, of course, we are uh, talking about the fast-approaching 20th anniversary. Still cannot believe it, but 20 years have passed since the attacks of September 11, 2001. And, uh, you know, Jeff and I were talking a little bit earlier uh, about what we were doing that day. And I think, you know, again, I really have to come back to it, you know, David Hanshu, our first guest, uh, somebody that I worked alongside with uh, at the New York Daily News, and uh, all three of us covered the events of that day. You know, the, the color of the sky, I really just do not think I have seen a sky uh, like that before or since. And, you know, it's it's hard to know what to to think about. I mean, should we be happier that we have not seen something like that again? Or should we be thinking about the people that we knew and lost? Or should we be thinking about, uh, you know, the work we did that day? Uh, Jeff, certainly, you know, you were right there um, hearing you talk about the hospitals. That was one of my one of my duties. I was I was at the site, but I was also stationed um, the first overnight. I was stationed actually outside the um, the morgue in Manhattan, my job was to was supposed to be to um, to count uh, body bags because we were not sure at that time how many people had lost their lives, and we thought this was one way we could try to get some understanding of of how horrible this event had been, and basically 
there was no uh, there there was not really much activity there because it was such a disaster area um, and after that having worked outside hospitals and talking to families and talking to people like Monica uh, people who were looking for their families and some of them you know thankfully got good news but a lot of them didn't and just thinking back to that time and all the funerals um, that we covered um, and that people attended you know for their for their own families it's uh, I, I don't know I mean I don't know if it will ever become an official federal holidays or something but I do hope that people take the time and I will take the time um, on that day to uh, to to remember what happened and I'm sure you will too Jeff yeah, and I'm very glad Monica mentioned about uh, how 9-11 lessons would be incorporated into educational curriculum. To me, that's as important as other lessons, you know, about uh, about slavery and about the Holocaust. You know, there are certain things you want to make sure that's, in my view, that students learn about at an early age that are part, you know, it's part of our history. I know we're going to have to wrap up soon, Celeste. Yeah, All you I- have. A few, yeah, a few words to say about City Watch. Of course, of course. Please go ahead. Please go ahead. I, I was going to keep it very brief. This Sunday okay. morning coming up, 10 a.m., I'm hosting again. I'll be focusing on the latest in culture and the pandemic, especially as Broadway reopens. But in this show, I will be focusing on the horizon ahead and the push for greater inclusion and representation in theater. And my guests include Adam Feldman, theater critic for Time at New York, and Aubrey Therian, the executive director of Epic Players, which works with neurodiverse talent, Celeste. Thank you, Jeff. And we want to say thank you, of course, today's very special guests, David Hanshu and Monica Eichen-Murphy. Thanks, as always, to our engineer, Reggie, who keeps this program going. And special, special thanks to you, our listeners. We hope you have a safe, healthy, and meaningful September 11th this year and every year. If you missed any part of the program, you can hear it in full by subscribing to Driving Forces via Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Or you can go check the archive section of WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. This has been Driving Forces. Please stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. See you on the radio.